Hi, this is Like Mycelium, a podcast where we hold conversations on the arts. And I'm your host, Maria Grand. For this third episode of Like Mycelium, I had the great honor of speaking with Matana Roberts, who is a saxophonist, composer, mixed media artist, in my books, a historian, visual artist, just so many things that they do. And I've known Matana for a few years. I was fortunate enough to participate in her piece, I Call America, for Sandra Bland, that was premiered um, at the Time Spence Festival in New York City. And this truly was a life-changing experience for me, musically and personally. I've admired them ever since and way before that, too. And, yeah, here they are. Also, if you like this podcast, please consider supporting my work on Patreon. That's at patreon.com slash Grand. Upon subscribing, you'll have early access to podcast episodes, as well as access to essays that I write live recordings of my band, live recordings of practice sessions, and Zoom sessions where we detail technical, emotional, creative, societal aspects of music. So if this speaks to you, head over to patreon.com slash mariakimgrand. Mycelium. Um, it's a podcast where we have conversations on the arts and on life and today I am thrilled um, to be speaking with an amazing artist Matana Roberts. They are a saxophonist, um, composer, vocalist, mixed media artist uh, and many other things. <laughs> so hi. Hi, it's so nice to be here. Did I did I do justice a little bit to what you do? No, you totally did justice. I I used to be very um I used to have a hard time with the labels and the things that people would position onto me, but now I've gotten to do so many interesting things. I mm. just whatever just being recognized in any way is just a very nice thing under whatever label people want to Hmm. yeah I guess like really getting into your music I started seeing you as a historian too um nice you know like all the coin coin work 
yeah for me it goes beyond music and and that's how you call it like a tapestry like a quilt yeah, a sound quilt yeah sometimes I go back and forth about the quilt sometimes using at first using quilting I felt using that term I got from my grandmother one of my grandmother's mm. family used to quilt together as mm. a as a family thing um because originally before that I kind of really gendered quilt quilting thinking mm -hmm. that quilt only done by women um by the women of the but my grandmother would talk about how it was really a family affair and with her father you know being really involved and her brothers and mm. I, she was one of 12 11 or 12 if I remember correctly and so I found that really fascinating and it really relates to how I think about sound and, and vision. Mm, like as a family thing. No, just as a quilt, well, as a community thing. Yeah. And, but as a, as a thing, that's not only something that's quote unquote domestic, that's put under sort of like these old gendered norms about what is women's work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I hear you. Um, yeah, one thing I wanted to ask you about that I didn't mention before is, uh, basically you coming up in Chicago and I think you posted a photo, um, with Fred Anderson, maybe. Yeah. And that was that at the apartment lounge? That was, yeah, that was at the apartment lounge. That would have been that photo. If I recall, it would have been like 1997 or 98, probably mm -hmm. when that photo and it was at the new apartment mm, because yeah. the original apartment lounge was around the corner just as interesting I'm glad he was able to stay in the neighborhood hmm. but uh, I owe Fred Anderson between Fred Anderson and Vaughn Freeman Lynn Halliday was running around there at that time Rudresh Mahanpa was running it was Chicago hmm. was like that was a crazy moment and there were so many interesting musicians of my generation kind of doing really interesting things playing improvised music but also being a big part of the post-rock scene in Chicago hmm. everybody was DJing it seemed like so everyone had really big ears and um and there was a kindness that existed that I think really helped me a lot a kindness you mean like a, a gentleness in in like learning in the learning process? Like a, like a welcoming, because at that time, before before that photo was taken, I think mm -hmm. I was already not in Chicago anymore and I'd come through through there. No, I would have left maybe a year after that or something. Mm -hmm. And uh, before that, I was going to all the, I was really in my quote unquote jazz bag in a sense. I was going to every jam session I could find. And at that time there was like at least one every night of the week, sometimes two on one night. Um, and and I co-led a, a jam session on the South side of Chicago for a little while. And then uh, Josh Abrams, Chad Taylor and I became the house band at the Velvet Lounge. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's your first album, right? That band. Yeah, that band is the first record. And uh there were just a lot of opportunities where there would be other musicians at these things who were way more advanced than I was, but they were super welcoming. Mm. They could tell, they could hear I was struggling, but they were also really 
cheerful about it. They would just say, come back, keep coming. Hmm. You know, I tried to corner Von Freeman for lessons forever. And he was like, no. He didn't give you lessons? No, he said, absolutely not. He said, just keep coming. Wow. Just, keep, just keep coming. And and Fred, uh, Fred Anderson, we would talk about sound. He would mm. spend some time talking about sound, but he never, we did some listening together. He would uh, get younger musicians to show up at the bar before it opens. And we'd sit at the bar and listen to like his, you know, he's a big bird person. Mm-hmm. And, sit there and we'd listen and he'd say things like you know do you hear that and I'd be like what he's like the center of the sound like listen to the center of the sound do you hear how centered his sound is and then he would say he wouldn't say you don't sound like that he would just say that's what you want you want Mm. to get that centered sound on your album wow That's really interesting. The thing you mentioned about like people being supportive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a precious thing. Yeah, I didn't realize how much of that I was getting coming from so many different corners Mm -hmm. uh, in Chicago. Like, it sort of blows my mind to think about that. And Fred Anderson he gave me one of my very first gigs, you know, he would give young people gigs and mm-hmm. I, I'd say, you know, Fred, what, what do you want me to do? He's like, you can do anything you want to do. And then my favorite thing is at the end of the night, even if there was no one there, he would make sure every musician walked out of there paid with something. Wow. I remember playing shows there where there was really, there must be like seven people there and it's like a five piece band, but every person in that band walked out with some cash in their pocket for the the night they played and I realized now he was probably just on you know doing that himself paying out of pocket Mm -hmm. just to make sure that we understood the you know you you get paid (laughs) yeah for your labor yeah wow that's that's really amazing to have that like that elder looking out for you yeah he did that for a lot of people and everyone I know that was (laughs) circling around the velvet at that time are still out here doing really amazing things Mm. and um well maybe we come back to that later the the first record you put out that was with the with the band with chad taylor and josh abrams right yeah we were originally it was it it started out as as the Matano Roberts trio, and then and then it turned into oh no, this is actually a real collaboration where we're going to write together and do. So then we picked a name that was more even that showed um, the evenness. And uh, Josh at the time was the house bass player for a while at the Velvet. I started running into him a fair amount, and Chad was already in New York, but Chad would come back and forth, and I was a big fan of Rob Mazur isotope 217 a lot of these folks on thrill jockey and chad would play with rob and uh i mean we all we all josh is from philly but josh was in school at northwestern okay. chad i think was in school i went to a school in chicago i never named because they treated me so bad but so <laughs> i was wow. i was I was told by a professor that the only way I was ever going to get any gigs is I was going to have to marry a musician. So I just never named them. 
that is crazy. I like to think that it was reverse psychology, but because uh, <laughs> it it made me work harder. I was like, okay. Wow. That's Um, so crazy. but we all, Chad grew up in Chicago or outside Chicago, Rob Missouri is from Chicago. It's a lot of like Mm Chicago people. And then Jeff Parker was around. And then David Boykin, Nicole Mitchell, Tamika Reed. Um, so many people were just sort of Matt Lux, interesting folks. A very, very young Jamie Branch, who I don't remember when she would come Wow, by. really? Yeah, apparently Fred would let her in because she wasn't of age. And she told me later she would come and hear us. Wow. And I don't, but she, and she said she was too shy to come up and say anything. I didn't meet her, meet her until I lived in Boston for a little while where she was also. Um, That's crazy. So it was like a while. It was, it was pretty wild. But then you moved to New York and I moved to Boston. Yeah, you moved to Boston. I moved, yeah, I moved to Boston for three years. And I got stuck in Boston because Boston is so expensive. Mm. And I started playing microtonal music. I had a microtonal music ensemble. Wow. I was being mentored by Joe Maneri. Um, Mm-hmm. really interesting. He and his wife, Sonia, who's a was a great artist. Uh and I was getting deep into that. And I was playing a show at a microtonal festival at MIT. when the trumpeter Matt Lavelle was also playing the same festival. And he came up to me and said, what are you doing living in Boston? He was like, why aren't you living in New York? And I said, first month, last month, security deposit and finder's fee. That's why I'm not living in New York. And he said, there's a $300 room for rent in this apartment that I live in with a bunch of other artists. You should come in. And it was crazy. It was in Jackson Heights and it was... an illegal space where the landlord, we had to pay in cash and we had to put the rent in a cigar box on top of the refrigerator. <laughs> and the landlord could key in anytime he wanted to, to come and get that rent. I, I don't even remember. I don't even think I knew that landlord by last name. Mike is all I knew. He was a Long Island Irish guy and it was a three better bedroom apartment. No, yeah, three-bedroom apartment that we turned into like an eight-bedroom by dividing all the, I think my original room was like a closet. Um, just, Oh, wow, like a walk-in closet type of thing. yeah, it was wild, but I started busking in the subways on the streets to pay that rent because it was 300 and that really, sometimes that was actually hard to get, but Mm -hmm. I managed to do it. Um, and paid in cash was one time the rent did disappear from the box like leaving cash money on you Wow. know Um, you mean it wasn't Mike who took it? It was like a. it was like a roommate we had one guy that moved in and moved out in the middle of the night while everybody was asleep Wow. and I'm pretty sure it was that guy that took all the cash Wow. Deep. yeah Wow. What a time. And. Did you um did you start thinking about gender around that time or before? Before then, before then, I had actually written this essay about the problems of gender in jazz music. Hmm. This was kind of the early, probably one of the first websites I ever had. And I posted it on this website. 
And it made the rounds. It made the rounds of so many people that I met people through it. Like I was approached by Jessica Pavone and Mary Halverson who had seen it online. They reached out to me and said, thank you, you know, for writing this. And, you know, we totally relate to Hmm. everything you're saying. Um, I mean, I moved to, I left Chicago because there weren't enough um, saxophonists with ovaries around. Uh, I mean, there was Julie Wood, who's an amazing saxophonist. There was a um, Black woman whose name I cannot remember. Uh, and she was the daughter of a very famous Chicago music teacher that I took a couple lessons with, I can't remember, who was like a direct descendant of this famous band director. Oh, from Dusabu? Yeah, the Captain Walter Diet. Yeah, um, yeah. Wow. Okay. I wanted to get some of that from <sighs> I think I know who you're talking about, but I can't remember her name. I think his name is like Jimmy something. I feel I'm embarrassed that I can't remember, but it was such a long time ago. Um uh and so there were maybe two women that I knew of. Mm. And there some really interesting Susan Cook. I took some classical saxophone lessons with. Hmm. I don't know if still there. She's like a genius on the saxophone and I really wanted to be somewhere where there were more women. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And New York, I came to New York to audition to get into a school there and was going to do it. But I kept running into all these people that went to this one school in Boston who were a lot more interesting to me. I and, see. Uh, I ended up going to that school in Boston for a while. Is that one nameable or no? Oh, yeah. Sorry. I went to the New England Conservatory. Okay. Okay. Cool. Cool. And you see yeah, it was one of the first places that actually took me seriously, educational mm-hmm. places. And did you, did. was that, was it around that time that you just kind of like went more into your own music than like standards? It was a combination. It was like that time. And it was a weird time to leave Chicago because... Chad and Josh and I were really kind of formulating something, but Chad was already in New York Mm -hmm. and had figured out a way to kind of, so Josh and Chad would ask me where was my music? Because before running into them, all I wanted to do was make, you know, I was like, there are a million standards. And until I can play those, I just don't feel I can do anything else. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until Josh and Chad were like, but Matana, where's your music? It's all well and good that you can do that and you you know do what you need to do. But like, what about your music? Um, and I was around. Nicole Mitchell and David Boykins were playing a lot of their own music then, and the, I played with them a little bit, and that was really interesting. And uh, and I was doing weird jobbing things in Chicago for a while. I played on the Latin scene a lot. And I don't know if you've ever seen some of those charts. It's really yeah. interesting because. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like they're like they're like in code some some of them where you where there're just things missing that you that you know hmm. are part of the genre so they don't have to be written in the in the score and then uh and then the school that I was dealing with in Chicago was just very formless like basy 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 you know, the director was like a North Texas one o'clock band, like guy. He's yeah. very funny, but just, you know, and um, 
Rudresh Mahatma showing up there was a really important moment for me because he was pissing off everybody with his playing. Hmm. Um, and I'd not I see. seen before. Just the angularity of his lines. And yeah. so, and people would say, you know, you have to play in the tradition. But Josh and Chad were very much like, you know, Matana, you know, we're like, where's your music? So the combination of being asked by my own friends and contemporaries, mm-hmm. being given opportunities by Fred Anderson to do whatever we wanted to do, um, and being around peers that, you know, I can still hear Nicole Mitchell screaming from the back of the velvet after everybody's solo. Wow. She'd be cheering people. She'd be so loud. It was the cutest thing. Wow. Yeah, I'm always curious about like that transition between, you know, like kind of learning the set of things and then going into your own thing. Um, I, I always find it like personally inspiring when people are able to go into into that place of themselves that's not where you're not trying to um you're not trying to play on the standard structures and i i mean i love the standard structures but but i admire you know the the ability to go into something else to go into something that's very personal so much um and yeah i mean that's that's like the 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 first um chapter of coin coin you did that in montreal I did. Were you living there? Illegally, yes. I was bounced. I become homeless in New York, and I. Oh, wow. uh, it was a. Re- I was in a really strange situation where I was losing my place, mm. and at that time, I had been going to Montreal for a long time because of the Suomi Popolo Fest with Josh and. Um, Chad, and it's because of Josh that I got to play on a, a Godspeed You Black Emperor record. He set that up as the Montreal band. And so because mm. of that, that started this long um, relationship. And I had friends who would come through New York from there and say, what are you doing? Come hang out with us for a while, like blah, blah, blah. And then I ended up losing this apartment that I had in Brooklyn. And I didn't have anywhere to go. Mm. A friend was like, oh, I'm traveling why don't you just come here for a couple of weeks? And then it turned into me kind of bouncing back and forth until I could find a new place in New York. And I was going back and forth between New York and Montreal for a couple of years. Um, hmm. Never formally living because it, it wasn't, you know, you're not, I wasn't allowed to do that. Yeah. But I had friends with spaces. And then I got pulled into a really interesting research project Um, out of McGill um, called Improvisation Community and Social Practice, where they brought me in to consult on starting an improvisation program at a youth center. Hmm. And uh, Godspeed, the band funded that whole, um, funded all the instruments for that. And then these other grants from Canada and McGill helped to really bolster it up. It was really interesting. So was there like a lengthy musical process before you record a coin coin, like in terms of like the band, the people playing? Yeah. So I had been. Coin coin start actually started in 2005, thanks to Jim Staley at the roulette. And mm. was I it like been... a commission? 
Yeah, I was given a, I won a Van Leer Fellowship. Uh -huh. And uh, along with that came kind of like a residency. And mm -hmm. I've been turning around the ideas for Corn Coin in my head for a while, but I just didn't have the space or money needed to kind of get it off the ground. And that's when it started. And so I started working on it and playing it in different configurations. Mm -hmm. it, it used to be a heavy string segment. Um, originally, I think actually the first gig was all strings. And then I just, I decided I wanted to just turn it into a community piece of allowing different people to play it so I can work on uh, communicating the style of language I was trying to develop to different people. Um, and when I started spending more time in Montreal, Montreal had a very healthy loft scene. And I started playing it. I was playing it in New York and I was playing it in Montreal. And I was playing a show in Montreal and the label owners of Constellation were in the audience and they came up to me after and they just said, where's the record? They were like, we need the record. Wow. I was, And I had been trying to get an American label to take it on and mm. I just couldn't get anyone. A couple people were interested, but they, I don't think they would have been able to put in the same type of resources that Constellation has been mm -hmm. able to this period of time. So, so yeah. And the goal with the project as a whole is to just get so many, you know, you're on this list of people trying to get, trying to get everybody in there, trying to get, everyone who's been such a part of my existence and sound on these records by the time it's all done mm. yeah it's like did you did you know like did you conceive it right away as a 12 12 album or 12 part thing i conceived it as 10 because i had 10 um ancestral stories that i found really interesting in the way that they crossed with periods of history that i'm really interested in Hmm. Um, and then I was matching the 10 stories to the possibility of 10 different ensemble configurations where I could challenge myself as a composer. Hmm. Uh, but then I forgot that there's one configuration, sound, sonic configuration that I love, and that's solo work. And so then yeah. I put solo chapter, there, there will be two solo chapters when it's all said and done. I see, I see. Yeah, because you've already done one there. The third one. Yeah, and the technically the third one should have been chapter one, and chapter one should have been chapter two, and chapter two should have been. <laughs> okay. And then chapter four is what it is, and chapter five is what it is, yeah. But I, I mixed up those. I didn't mean to do that, but that's just what happened. So do you mean like a linear thing in terms of like history? Like the history of so the ancestors you're talking about? No, just in terms of just in terms of the stacking of sounds. I like mm, okay. I like sound to start with some sort of singular kind of vision and then build out from there. Um, we're gonna be jumping around a fair amount now after chapter five. So there there won't be it was important for me to deal with places. Uh, Tennessee, Mississippi, Louisiana, and now that's pretty much rooted. So now 
I can dig into these more granular aspects. Hmm. Hmm. I have so many questions. Um, when did you start singing or using your voice? I was, uh, I mean, I grew up around a lot of singers. My mother could sing, my uncles could sing. Mm. Um, never heard my dad sing. I've, oh, no, I found out later that my dad was in a doo-wop singing group when he was 12. Wow. Never knew that. Wow. Uh, but when I was a kid, I would enter talent shows. I, I, I wanted to be a dancer. That didn't work out. So I started doing a lot of theater, public theater and things and start using my voice more. I wrote to Motown, told them they needed to hear me. I was like, no. <laughs> they oh sent me God. back a letter too. It was hysterical. They sent back a letter carefully explaining the role of the demo tape, which I thought was really cute. They did I, Wow. Yeah, I think they could tell by my handwriting that I was, you know, barely whatever age I was. Wow. But I would do these talent shows and I would get booed most of the time. Yeah? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My signature song, this is hysterical. This is <laughs> My signature song was New York, New York is what I would sing. Uh-huh. Like a little top hat and a little cane situation. And I would get booed. It was because I wow. wasn't, I didn't know how to sing, sing, like in the ways that people, I had something else going on. And mm -hmm. so I sang in some choruses. My parents put me in an all black children's chorus and that was a really great time. Then mm -hmm. I started playing instruments and just kind of got sidetracked mm -hmm. and was going towards. And I wouldn't sing on the coin coin records if it wasn't, if the work hadn't have asked for it. Mm -hmm. The work asked for that to happen. So. Mm -hmm. Hmm. you mean like the work was it like the music or like some also like the honoring of the history the ancestors because well, my interest is in making is in allowing abstract abstract sounds to have mm. uh, multiple points of entry for many different types of people And so I find with storytelling and with singing, that is a way that really allows people to enter. And I I mean, group singing in particular. Mm. Um, I find that it's a it's like a palate cleanser to allow people to have a moment before throwing them back into abstraction or ideas that might be really challenging for them. So the work when mm -hmm. I was putting the work together. Well, it was that and also going to some shows of some of my label mates. It was a particular band called A Silver Mount Zion that's no longer together. And I would go to their shows when um, they'd show up in the States. And I just love the feeling of people singing their songs with them. Mm. And I guess that happens at other places too. It was that. And then also there was that record, Roy Haynes, I think it was like live at the Village Vanguard. It was recorded live at the Village Vanguard, but I don't remember what it was called. And at the this last track on this record, he sings this Calypso with the audience. 
And wow. it's just the most awesome sound. And I remember thinking, I want to do that with people. Like there's just something really, and the record fades out to him and the audience singing. It's <laughs> such a great, it's so simple, but it's such a great moment. And um, I just wanted to know what that felt like. Wow. Okay, so next question. So, okay, so in the, uh, well, it, it's perfect because like for me too, you know, when I, when I listen to it, I do feel that pull towards the storytelling and the voice. And I guess I'm used to the abstraction, but it's still, I, I can still feel like what you're calling the palate cleanser. Like it, it, it shifts your attention into something different. And so in the first thing you said, there's one lyric where you say, I am Matana, I am coin coin. Um, and then I looked it up. So your name means gift, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So even when people are mad at me, it's not so bad. <laughs> <laughs> they say my name can't be that mad because they have to call me. Yeah, But why, why do you say I am Matana, I am coin coin? Because when I was a kid, so the coin coin, the coin coin lineage is is connected to my maternal grandfather. My maternal grandfather was raised by, um, I mean, I might be related to her by blood. I've got cousins on, I've got double-sided cousins and we still haven't figured out exactly what's going on there. But my um, grandfather and his brother were orphaned. They were married to a, a family that was nearby in the community And they were taken in by the coin coin people who were in the coin coin lineage because their their aunt was married also to like these families on this one river area were very intertwined. And so the first time that I heard about coin coin or the, the usage of of that name, because they're not 100 sure if that was the correct pronunciation or if it was even coin coin, it just kind of turned into that. Um, he when he would he would tease me with uh, this very particular kind of river patois that they spoke mm -hmm. that wasn't quite like Louisiana style like it was this very particular language that they would have and he'd call me coin coin so it's kind of a homage to that memory and also this idea of deja vu about um because she was one of the first strong female characters that I'd ever heard about that was in close relation to my family. And I just found it really fascinating to hear all these things that this one person managed to do, despite having so many odds stacked against them. Mm, this aunt, you mean? This, uh, the coin coin, having the original Marie Matoye, uh, because she was a slave who was supposedly loaned, they said it loaned in a business pairing to this, um, I want to call him French soldier, but I know that's not 100% correct. Uh, she was loaned from the family that owned her to this man and became his property and ended up having um, a bunch of his kids. Mm. And he never married her. The, like the 
concubine thing in Louisiana was very particular. And I think that had something to do with what was going on because he never married her, though they knew, though it was clear they were together hmm. and that he owned her. So, you know, marriage and ownership in, in hmm. that way um, wasn't possible. But he manumitted her, he freed her and uh, gave her land um, and married some other one. He married some other woman that had, that was also named Marie, a white woman named Marie, which I always found really painful mm. what that, um, at the same time, you know, it's a very Catholic community. So having multiple Maries is, is very common. But I just thought about that, you know, the... You know, because maybe it was maybe it was ownership and then turned into something where he realized this slavery thing is not this is just a horrible thing. And I love this person, actually. And maybe I just don't remember the ages mm. like it's, she was I think she was older. I don't think it was like a Sally Hemings Jefferson, you know, because Sally Hemings was 15 or something. Mm. I think Coin Coin was older and Coin Coin had already had five other children oh, wow. before um, she'd met, uh, she'd been hooked up with this guy. And so this guy had in manumission had given her 67 acres or 60 something acres. And she oh. turned that acreage into a, just a, a dynasty. Like she really... Okay, that's what you're talking about in the in the album. Yeah, she really turned the land into this dynasty of wealth for her descendants that my grandfather and his um his people really benefited from. They they mm -hmm. grew up around a fair amount of wealth at a time where it wouldn't have been possible. And I mean, I grew up really poor by the time by the time it got to my generation all that was gone mm. but for a time they lived in a way pre-civil war that was just very privileged mm. wow my my grandfather was born in the 20s but his great-grandfather mm -hmm. like those yeah areas because uh if i i was born a child of the moon in the year of 1742 so she was born in 1742, the original coin coin. And whatever wealth she built kept going, at least through maybe the 30s. Hmm. Um, there was a huge, I think it was a bull weevil plague of crops that was really ruinous for a lot of people. They made a lot of their money off the land. Hmm. Um, and then there was... another family there that um my grandfather's father was part of another family there that was also really well healed they made their money off of race horses they were known for um training some of the best race horses in the on that side of the mason dixon line and made a lot of money doing that and some of them even fought for the confederacy fought against you know having slavery um not become illegalized because they knew that once slavery became legalized 
they would not be able to be seen as above the slaves, that they would be just based on color, mm. just kind of with, with everyone. Did you get a lot of that information by talking to people in your family or looking at historical records, historical records? It was a mix. So I come from a family that does the like sit around the kitchen table and talk about all these stories for the mm. long first family tree I made. I was nine or 10 and my mother had already I had my mother's that she made when she was nine or 10. And my grandmother, um, who was from uh, Memphis, Tennessee, who also came from a really interesting Memphis family. Uh, mm. Her father was a doctor who had a practice on Beale Street, which that always, and they would get their family photos done at the in the same uh, photo studio as that famous Robert Johnson photo. Like it was, they were wow. really, um, so she did a good job at, at, at keeping track of stuff. She was really into it. And when she passed, she had a bunch of records. But even before, when I would visit her, in the corner of her living room would be these stack of photo albums, really old photo albums um, of photos from as early as the 1850s or so, uh, spanning both sides. And I used to spend a lot of time looking at those photographs. Um, So by the time uh, family records started showing up online, I already knew a lot of information and I knew how to track down people. Um, And I had tracked down a woman in upstate New York who had done the entire tree of the ones of this one side of my Louisiana people, along with an entire archive of where everyone's buried in different parts. And uh, it's how, um, that's how I found out that Jason Moran and I are cousins. Are you serious? I didn't know that. Oh yeah, Jason is, <laughs> Jason is Jason is blood related to the original coin coin for sure. Yeah, wow. yeah. I was looking. She sent me this tree, and I'm looking through, and I got to, and I have been buying Jason's records for at least a decade. And he and I were teaching at the school for improvised music, and I'm looking through this thing, and it gets to a Jason Moran something something Houston, Texas, 1975. I wrote to I was like, Jason, this is not you. <laughs> is this your birthday? And he was like, what's up, cuz? Wow. (laughs) And he really helped me to fill in some holes. So it's been like, it's been a mix. And and then my Mississippi side on my father's side, they were land people too. And uh, there was a paper trail for some of them. So Mm. it's been really interesting. Wow. Yeah, that is really, really interesting to me. And um. And it's inspiring, you know, to see what you've done with this, because um, I've been doing a, a some some genealogical research on my family, and just like just to see how you've you've created this whole work, you know, this whole musical work out of your ancestry. Um, yeah, I think of it all, almost as like a as a legacy, you know, like the way it's it's putting everything together, especially because it's like. 12 chapters. I mean, that's like a, that's, that's a really big work. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and so for the last one, the one that's going to come out this month. Oh. So um, 
<sighs> so I just, I, I mean, I listened to the three pieces that are online and I looked at the thing you wrote. It was actually really helpful to look at your band camp because there's something that I guess you've at least like been okay with, you know, okayed or like wrote or something. Because then the Wikipedia, I, I just don't like reading that because I'm like, I don't know who, who writes that, you know. Um, and it said that you were talking about an ancestor, a person who died by an illegal abortion. Yes. Um, yeah, so, yes. And that got me thinking also about autonomy, um, especially nowadays with like the, just how the world is. Um, yeah, I guess I was... I don't really have a question, but just like the thought of like that feeling of being left to your own devices, you know, and like how, I don't know how, how much damage that can do, but also how can we, how can we find ways to like, hmm. So that this that this stuff doesn't happen anymore, and so but so that people can have knowledge, you know. No, I mean it's a it's a. Uh, I don't know if that made sense. Maybe that's no, that it. totally makes sense. And and her story. The thing about knowing a lot of these stories is they've really informed choices I've made for myself in my life because. Mm of knowing what, like her, her in particular, she was in a very bad situation. Mm. And it was a sort of situation where I don't think she actually wanted to do what she had to do, but the law at the time just made it impossible for her to have any autonomy in the matter. It, wow. um, she was in a situation with a, par with a husband who, didn't really see her value that's it and and so she tried to grab some autonomy for herself by leaving the situation yeah. um, only to not understand that she was with child and the laws on the books at that time and I've, I've looked them up they're really interesting you couldn't she couldn't be employed um being in the quote-unquote family way where she was without the husband's permission or the husband and she had already had two children and she was trying to provide for them so and the story has been told to me in a couple different ways whether it was uh a self-induced abortion mm. whether it was i do have the death certificate of where she was seen and the death certificate lists that i'll never forget it almost as if to shame her what she died from. It, it was insepticemia, but they made sure to also put that the insepticemia was caused by the abortion. Wow. Which I thought was interesting for it. It was, would have been a 1925-24 death certificate. Wow. It's, uh, but it was a the thing about this, this particular story is it was whispered to the folks with ovaries in one way and whispered to the men in a completely different way. My grandfather went to his grave thinking that his mother had died in childbirth. 
Wow. So the men didn't know the whole story. Men didn't know at all. What had happened is there was a, a cousin, as it was explained to me, there was a cousin who went senile in the 60s and started telling everybody's business. <laughs> started. Wow. And, and amongst the women. And that's how the story, and by the story, by the time the story got to me, I just always wondered if it was really true or if it was one of those games of telephone. So when I started digging into ancestry, it was one of the stories I wanted to to see. Um, so you went back it, to get the certificate. You you looked for that. Yeah, I got the certificate. I mean, that was wild because Louisiana is one of the few states that just doesn't have everything digitized. So mm. you have to. I had to write a letter, put it in the mail to get a hold of this thing. There was no like email, no, no nothing. Um, but what I had also heard, which I found was also true, is that um, because of the abortion, she wasn't allowed to be buried with her family in the Catholic cemetery that they were in. And part of the research for this chapter was going down there to see if that was indeed true, going to the cemetery. And it was true. She might be there. She might be just not marked, mm. but she's, you know, she's from a very large family also. I think it's like 10 or 11 and uh, she's not there. Wow. So I, I just always found that story kind of fascinating and um, I could not imagine being in the situation, not having my own autonomy over my own body. And uh, I'm sort of mad that this chapter is coming out during this time period, because when I started this, there wasn't, you know, it was clear, you know, my body, my choice, mm -hmm. even though you had the people yelling and screaming, whatever, mm -hmm. but the law in the books was protective. And so it's horrifying what we're having to deal with right now. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. I mean, when I think about it, you know, like if I couldn't have an abortion, I would have been a very young mom and I wouldn't have been able to like, cause I'm a mom now and I I'm very, I love being a mom, but in terms of accomplishing what you want to do, like I, there's no way I would have been able to put the amount of hours into my, you know, into my work that I, that I could done, could do because I didn't have the responsibility of a person. And I mean, yeah. that's just one aspect of things. <laughs> no, just... but that's the, that's the thing. Like it's, I have luckily never had to make that choice, but I've come close. Mm -hmm. I have had, I had a miscarriage when I was 18 or 19. And uh, as, as upsetting as it was in a sense, it was also relief because the person I was with was not a good person. Mm -hmm the um the idea of even when that happened knowing that I could make a choice and not have to feel like I couldn't make a choice mm -hmm. and I've had mm -hmm. other moments but they, but I've always felt comforted by the fact well if I if it turns out I don't want to do this I do have a way out of here and now you're hearing about like I think I was reading in the times the other day a, a girl entering the seventh grade pregnant because she's not allowed to. And it's just like, come on, people. Like, let's get, or women um, bleeding out because the the uh, medical providers are not able to 
um, abort the fetus, but they have to deliver it anyway, like some yeah. sort of stillborn. Um, it's crazy. It's really crazy. So I wanted to, but the way I'm telling her story on this chapter is I'm trying to tell it in a way where she's free. She's really mm. free. And there's a joy to that freeness that it's not just a tragedy that it's, there's also, I try to narrate it in a way where you can hear her reflection, her, like her reflections are really um, joyful. Mm. Just about, you know, trying to have a little bit of a sense of humor in there. I mean, it's hard to talk about until you get to hear the, and I'll make sure you get a copy of the record. Sorry, I should have done that before. It's all good. I, I thought about asking you and then I was like, no, it's, I, it's I fine. Would, I would gladly do that so I can do that. Um, I can at least get you a download code so you can hear it before it comes out. I mean, that would be amazing. Yeah, um, I would have. But so that makes me, um, like what you're saying about, about telling her story with a sense of joy, is that something that you feel like when you go, when you go back and do this historical work, Do you feel that you're um do you feel that there's healing that comes from being able to retell the story? I hope so. I mean, it's also it's the kind of story that you don't know if even she would have wanted to told. Mm. So I've learned to try to do these in a way where I'm a little bit more protective. Mm -hmm. Um I mean, even seeing her face full frontal as part of this record is a little hard for me. Mm. Um, but it's also that's a very important photo that I'm glad that I have and I know that she died feeling a lot of shame just because mm. of the time and so like like making the record I wanted it to be like a correction of that mm. that it wasn't shame actually and she she actually was doing something that she had to do and the and the and she was being treated in such a horrible emotionally horrible i no i don't think there was any physical violence um but there were some emotionally horrible things going on that she was being told she had to accept and uh mm -hmm. I do have some understanding of what it's like to be in those kinds of situations a little bit at this point. So it's, it was a chance for me to kind of throw some ancestral, some um, descendant support her way and to let her know mm -hmm. how inspiring her ability to want to be who she was without having to deal with the very particular types of oppression um she tried to move against them tried to hold on to her autonomy because things were really changing then too i mean the 20s mm -hmm. really fascinating time in america and uh for women and uh it's just really interesting to to think about i mean it wasn't until like 1975 that uh 
Before then, women had to ask their husband's permission for divorces in most states, you know, things like this, you know, <laughs> just like you couldn't have a checking account in your own name in some states, you know, the Equal Rights Amendment still isn't passed in every state in the in the nation. I mean, it's it's a, it's really um, wild, this kind of secondhand citizenry that's thrown on the people that actually help bring the people here. You know what I'm saying, mom? Right. <laughs> yeah. But you are, we're, we're portals, right? We are. So it's to be portals and then to still be treated with just such disdain is, is such a travesty. Yeah. I, I've thought about that a lot and a lot of what you're saying really resonates because um, recently I went, I traveled to Israel to meet my great aunt. Wow. Yeah. Uh, she's 92 years old and I, I didn't even know she existed until like a couple of years ago. Wow. And, you know, I had like, I had feelings about going to Israel, but I decided I had to go because I didn't, I couldn't ask her to visit me here. Wow. And, and when I visited her, um, yeah, it was really life-changing. And she told me a lot of stories about my grandmother and how she was trapped with this, you know, like really, really narcissistic husband and couldn't leave because if she left, she knew, according to my great aunt, she knew she would lose her children, you know? Wow. And just having to make that choice of being stuck with this person who mistreats you on a daily basis um, in order to be able to raise your kids, you know, and and I think about that a lot because like for me, I, there's like a level of freedom um, that is unheard of. You know, I think about her and I, I think about like all the things I can do, like all, you know, I can be with someone, I can separate, I can get married, I can get a divorce, I can go somewhere. But you know what? Mm -hmm. So I have to play. Oh, you have to go? I have to I have to play <laughs> in like 20 minutes. Oh my god. Well, this is perfect anyway. <laughs> I mean, I could talk to you for a few more if I turn the camera off, I can talk to you for a few more minutes while I finish. No, it's cool. Ready. It's cool. Let, let's wrap up. Let's wrap up. No, thank you so much. And yeah, I feel like I, I, I have like 30 more questions, you know, but Okay. <laughs> so this could go on forever. So yeah. So, all right. So thank you so much. And I'm going to stop recording now. Okay.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Like My Ceiling. This is Maria Grand. If you would like to support this podcast, please go to patreon.com/slash Maria Kim Grand. The songs you have heard are off of my album Reciprocity. The first one is Creation A Home in Mind, part of the Creation Suite. The second one is Creation Matricense. And the last one that you just heard is called Wobbly. And this is Savannah Harris on the drums and Camilla Mendenhall on the bass and myself on tenor saxophone. Thank you so much for listening.